past president of the Civil War Roundtable and proprietor, current proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookstore. Dan? I just wanted to take a quick moment before I do an introduction and just uh, say for the center of Indiana history in South Bend, they have a spectacular display of Lincolniana up there from Jack Smith's collection. It is visual beyond belief. It will blow you away. It's only there till May. And I urge you all to get there. Notre Dame has put some Maher material up there, the Irish Brigade battle flag, not their battle flag, but their ceremonial flag and uh, some murals that have not been seen since Maher went out in his uh, trips, uh, speaking trips. I urge you all to go there. If you need more information, call us at the shop and we'll give it to you, but you must go. Really, very few people need no introduction. The President of the United States, and that I mean Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> Michael Jordan, perhaps, and our next speaker. When he graciously accepted uh, to come and speak to us, he wrote that one of his first published pieces was an article on the Civil War Roundtables he gave up in Madison. And uh, if he had stayed with the Civil War, we probably would have been saying today, Shelby who? <laughs> so we lost him. But we welcome you back to your roots. Now, I've learned from Ambrose that uh, something of Abraham Lincoln I really did not appreciate in that just like Al Gore who invented the internet uh, Lincoln invented the transcontinental railroad the same way Gore did that is by giving monetary succor to it by facilitating monetary legislation and I think that's one of the major points of his new book Steve writes with verve and insightful analysis and just like the the preacher who was out in the storm that Lincoln spoke about, the lightning and thundering, and uh, he said, please, a little more light and less noise. Steve gives us more light than noise in, in all of his writings. He speaks with knowledge and a great deal of time and thought. Lincoln would say to himself that he bounded his thoughts north and south, east and west, and I think that's what Steve does. He makes it so that each of us can understand what he is saying. We can access his knowledge. So he is a supporter, an interpreter of history, past and present, an author, a commentator, an educator, a TV pundit, and a Renaissance author uh, historian. He's written, of course, as we know, World War II is not the same without him. Lewis and Clark, Crazy Horse, biographies in the Civil War of Upton and of Halleck, Eisenhower and Nixon later on, and most recently, he's a museum builder, the D-Day Museum, which I think all of us need to get down to at some point. And I've just found out an adventurer. I think he's trying to tip the scales away from the Civil War and the raising of the Huntley, and he's trying now to go and find a Japanese submarine over at uh, Pearl. So we'll see if he can raise one of those. So for a man who knows no introduction, needs none, I'll get out of the way, our next speaker, Stephen Ambrose. Thanks very much, and I appreciate that more than I can say. But I've also got to add, you're stealing my time. <laughs> I am back at my roots. I joined the Civil War Roundtable in Madison, Wisconsin in 1955. And I have spoken at that organization and, and many other roundtables. But I have spoken at the Madison Civil War Roundtable in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, and in the 1990s, and God willing, it'll be in this coming decade. And I'm very proud of that. I also, when I was 19 years old, rode a bike down to Vicksburg. I wanted to see the battlefield. And I ran into Ed. And we spent a day together. 
and there is nothing like that, I've got to tell you. And I, like all of you, fall to my knees. I am in awe of Ed. And I've been with him, he does Lewis and Clark. You get a day with Ed at Vicksburg and you're gonna really learn a lot. And this summer we were on the Delta Queen. And I learned for the first time, and if you wanna know the story, you're gonna have to ask Ed, that there was a Confederate cannonball that landed in the state of Iowa in the Civil War. We also, we did other things, and we went up to Bad Axe, where Ed talked about Black Hawk and the Black Hawk War. And I learned that when Black Hawk was captured and brought down to St. Louis, there were a lot of people involved in this Black Hawk War. Zachary Taylor, uh, Meriwether Lewis Clark. Uh, the escort, or that's not quite, the guards, I guess, would be the right way to put it, of Black Hawk were Jefferson Davis and Robert Anderson. Isn't that something? That's what you learn when you hang around with that. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to uh, do two things today. Uh, one is to, to talk of, or to read a piece about the Civil War Roundtables. And then I'm going to talk about Lincoln and the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, you're going to have to forgive me because this was one of the very first articles I've ever done. And I notice here that it's published by the Wisconsin Magazine of History the summer of 1959. And that's quite a long time ago. And if I had a chance to do it over again, it'd be a lot better. But, <laughs> but I don't. So anyway, here's some parts of what I say in this article. The roundtable movement dates from the late 1930s, when a group of enthusiastic customers of Ralph C. Newman's Abraham Lincoln Bookstore in Chicago began meeting informally to discuss their common hobby over lunch. They soon decided to form an organization with no officers, rules, or dues. Met for dinner once a month, then they heard a talk by one of the members and then discussed the speaker's subject. On December 3rd, 1940, they held their first meeting at the Bismarck Hotel. That evening, 15 Civil War aficionados heard Percival C. Hart speak on Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. The Civil War Roundtable was born. In 1945, the Chicago group, recognizing the necessity for some rudimentary form of organization, elected Monroe Cockrell, a noted Civil War author, as its first president, and four years later decided to incorporate as a nonprofit organization. Meanwhile, in 1946, and Floyd McGowan and Rucker Agee had instituted a group in Birmingham. The next year, W. Norman Fitzgerald took the lead in forming a Civil War roundtable in Milwaukee. Atlanta and New York helped swell the ranks in 1950. Washington, D.C. in 1951. In the far west, Ezra Warner had formed a one-man chapter in Douglas, Arizona. In June 1952 at Gettysburg, the roundtablers scouted the possibility of formally federating the branches of the Civil War Roundtable for mutual benefit. This is a quote, for mutual benefit, exchange of program ideas and of speakers. The representatives of the local roundtables rejected the centralization scheme. They would continue to fight their own war in their own way. The movement had depended on word of mouth for, for publicity. It received powerful reinforcement in 1952 when the Lincoln Herald, a scholarly quarterly published by the Lincoln Memorial University of Harrogate, Tennessee, accepted Ralph Newman's idea to devote a section of each issue to roundtable activities. The impetus given by the Lincoln Herald's publicity helped, and by 1959 there were 68 roundtables 
representing over 6,000 members throughout the United States, Canada, England, and Germany. Uh, typically, in Hartford, Connecticut, a banker and a lawyer who shared an interest in the war decided to form a roundtable in their city. A local bookstore supplied them with the names of 30 enthusiasts with whom they got in contact, and 23 of them showed up for the first meeting in January 1958. A year later, they had 110 members. Mayville, New York, a village of 1,500 people, became the smallest town in the country to support a roundtable. It contributed 25 recruits. Detroit, which organized in 1952, secured the Logan County Courthouse, scene of Lincoln's early law practice for its meetings. Henry Ford had moved it to um, Greenfield Village at Dearborn. <coughs> Excuse me. In the absence of any central governing body has led to a wide divergency among the groups. New Albany, Indiana is a, quote, serious study group, not in the Civil War roundtable to be entertained. While in Lexington, Kentucky, the members, quote, attend to enjoy. And the secretary notes that we strive to entertain. Membership ranges from 550 in Washington, D.C., to 12 in La Follette, Tennessee. And dues range from, get ready, $1 to $15. Most roundtables meet monthly. The gatherings consist of cocktails, conversation, dinner, and a speaker. The larger roundtables have consistently obtained outside speakers for each meeting, usually paying their expenses and a small honorarium. And as one of those who's been involved in this, I guarantee you it's a small honorarium. <laughs> Bruce Catton, Robert Seth Henry, General Ulysses S. Grant III, Douglas Southall Freeman, T. Harry Williams, Colonel Alan P. Julian, Bell Wiley, Virgil Carrington Jones, and other authorities have spoken before almost all these groups. Adlai Stevenson will address the Madison-Wisconsin Civil War Roundtable this fall. I was present at that meeting, which was memorable, and wonderful wit. I mean, whatever you think about Adlai's politics, God, that guy could make you laugh. Um, well, each roundtable has its own unique feature. And like the Civil War regiments, most have a distinctive emblem. Hagerstown, Maryland, owns the, quote, only completely equipped and uniformed Confederate artillery unit in the country. It has six mules and a genuine 12-pound cannon, which we fire on the slightest excuse. <laughs> Evansville, Indiana, which takes a, quote, rather lighthearted, enthusiastic view of the recent unpleasantness, has an annual Appomattox Day jubilation barn burning and surrender party, <laughs> for which the cornmeal for the cornbread served is obtained direct from historic Lee and Gordon's Mill in Chickamauga, Georgia. Only one roundtable is sectionally restricted. In LaSalle, Illinois, full membership is limited to those of union views. The high command considers the war as having been fought between the United States and its enemies and rejects, or so they say, the usual North and South flap. They have consented to give a special oath and parole card to rebels. <laughs> but these are only associate non-voting memberships. <laughs> the Federals force the Confederates to swear, quote, that I will not engage in espionage, passing of information, cotton speculation, blockade running, arson, or other activities, and will abide peacefully in the community of my selection until the termination of the hostilities known as the Civil War, the War of the Rebellion, or the War Between the States. Expressions of individuality abound in the roundtables, but the members are not too proud to adopt new ideas. In 1951, Chicago led in what would become the most widely cop copied innovation, the battlefield tour. By train, bus, or even plane, 
the Illinois, uh, the Illinois people descend on the sites, eager to do battle and later enjoy the fruits of victory. Nashville was the first Confederate city to fall to the intrepid Yankees. <laughs> Chattanooga, Franklin, and Knoxville surrendered the same year to a federal force of less than 40. In 1952, the warriors shifted to the Eastern Theater where they refought the battles of Antietam and Gettysburg. During their examination, of the Burnside Bridge at Antietam, the Roundtablers suffered their first casualty. Confederate kickers managed to assault their ranks successfully. <laughs> From the female point of view, the war was never up to date, since it was fought before the advent of either the wax or the waves. Patriotic women of the, of the 1860s who wanted to fight for their country assumed male clothing and battled side by side with their husbands and brothers. In more than half of the round tables today, their great-granddaughters would have to follow the same practice. However, many round tables have followed Wiesbaden, this is the German branch, have followed Wiesbaden's example and admitted women to full membership. Some even allow them to make speeches. <laughs> there is another organization for the ladies. Mrs. Lloyd Lewis, wife of the late Civil War author and reporter here in Chicago, once remarked during her husband's lifetime that she had lost him to the Civil War. Mrs. William B. Heseltine, wife of the noted Lincoln Authority, rejoined that she had not lost her man. She had followed him to camp. The remark prompted her to have cards printed with the heading, The Camp Followers of the Civil War and she distributed them widely to round-table widows. They read, the bearer is entitled to draw rations, solid and liquid, and to accompany her man on encampments, round-table bivouacs, and battlefield visitations, so long as she performs the time-honored and traditional duties of a camp follower. <laughs> As with their politics regarding women participants, roundtable publications vary with the individual group. Most manage to produce a monthly newsletter that informs members of the date and subject of the next meeting. The Big Creek Gap Bugle of La Follette, Tennessee was printed recently on wallpaper to remind its readers of that frequent practice in the paper-poor confederacy. An earlier issue reported that on the Goldsboro, North Carolina battlefield, a wounded artilleryman was asked by a chaplain, my son, are you supported by divine grace? No, he replied angrily, we were supported by the 9th New Jersey. <laughs> Washington has pioneered in what may become a widespread practice. It holds an annual gold medal dinner to honor a scholar for outstanding achievement in the field of Civil War history. In 1953, the late Douglas Southall Freeman, the nation's authority on Lee, was the first recipient. Others have included Robert Seth Henry, Bruce Catton, Major Joseph Mills Hansen, and T. Harry Williams. The roundtables are not egocentric groups existing in a vacuum. Richmond has been instrumental in preserving historical landmarks around the city. New York blocked the erection of a drive-in theater at Gettysburg. Washington prevented the sale of some land on the battlefield of Antietam. Most of the roundtables have contributed to Lincoln Memorial University. Chicagoans visited the school after their first field trip, and the travelers contributed $1,000 to the scholarship fund. Remember, this was 40 years ago I wrote that. So a thousand bucks doesn't sound like much today. The groups help support many historical journals, notably Civil War History, published by the State University of Iowa and the Lincoln Herald. Since the Civil War was and is a part of the whole nation, the roundtables have drawn no class lines. Although the majority of members are business and professional men, it is not unusual to find cab drivers, factory workers, and mill hands arguing the merits of Pickett's charge with retired army officers, TV executives, and chemists. Dairy farmers tell their wives to attend to the milking, just as their grandfathers did in 1861 
while they themselves charged bravely forward to stump the learned professors. Almost every round table lists a governor, representative, or senator in its ranks, although only Kansas City can boast of an ex-president. Harry Truman is an active member and has spoken to the Civil War Roundtable in Kansas City. Beyond all the motives that lead people to join a roundtable, roundtables share a deep and abiding belief that the Civil War is the central theme in American history. Their feelings are well expressed in the opening statement of the 1956-57 Washington Roundtable yearbook. Quote, the 250 years preceding the great conflict sounded only the opening chords in the prologue to the dramatic events of the 60s. The round tables are, this is the end of quote, the round tables are yet another evidence that the quiver has not yet subsided and that a catastrophe which divided the nation 100 years ago is today, through the Civil War roundtables, helping to unite it. All right, now I'm going to turn over to the same time period, but this is about a resident of Illinois and the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. August 13, 1859. It was a hot day in Council Bluffs, Iowa. The settlement was on the western boundary of the state, just across the Missouri River from the Nebraska village of Omaha. A politician from the neighboring state of Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, went to Concert Hall to make a speech. In the audience was Grenville Mellon Dodge, a 28-year-old railroad engineer. The next day, he joined a group of citizens who had gathered on the big porch of the Pacific House, a hotel, to hear Lincoln answer questions. When Lincoln had finished and the crowd dispersed, W.H.M. Pusey, with whom the speaker was staying, recognized young Dodge. He pointed out Dodge to Lincoln and said that the young engineer knew more about railroads than any two men in the country. That snapped Lincoln's head around. He studied Dodge intently for a moment and then said, let's go meet. He and Pusey strolled across the porch to a bench where Dodge was sitting. Pusey introduced them. Lincoln sat down beside Dodge, crossed his long legs, swung his foot for a moment, put his big hand on Dodge's forearm, and went straight to the point. Dodge, what's the best route for a Pacific Railroad to the west? Dodge instantly replied, from this town out the Platte Valley. Lincoln thought that over for a moment or two and then asked, why do you think so? Dodge replied that the route of the 42nd parallel was, quote, the most practical and economic for building the railroad, which made Council Bluffs the logical point for beginning. Why, Lincoln wanted to know. Because, this is quote, because of the railroads building from Chicago to this point, Dodge answered, and because of the uniform grade along the Platte Valley all the way to the Rocky Mountains. Lincoln went on with his questions until he had gathered from Dodge all the information Dodge had reaped privately doing surveys for the Rock Island Railroad Company on the best route to the west. Or, as Dodge later put it, quote, he shelled my woods completely and got all the information that I'd collected. <clears throat> Skipping quite a bit here. Lincoln was a gifted pilot on western rivers and eager to build canals. In 1836, when he was in the state legislature, he cast the deciding vote for a bill to authorize the state to loan $500,000 to support the bonds of the Illinois and Michigan Canal. But even more, he wanted those railroads, which had so many advantages over canals. And he wanted the federal government to let the state use the sale of public lands to raise the money to promote railroads. Lincoln was ahead of, but still in touch with, his fellow citizens. By 1835, railroad fever had swept America. It was inevitable in a country that was so big, with so many immigrants coming in, creating a desperate need for transportation. 
Despite the limitations of the first trains, their cost, heart-stopping, Lincoln said, their cost, their unproved capabilities, their dangers, everyone wanted a railroad. Railroads were planned, financed, laid throughout the East and over the mountains. Even though the Panic of 1837 slowed building considerably, by 1840, nearly 3,000 miles of track had been laid in the United States already more than in all of Europe. As one observer noted, the key to the evolution of the American Railroad is the contempt for authority displayed by our engineers. The engineers were there to build a transcontinental railroad as they had built so many tracks, curves, and bridges by the beginning of 1850. The country owned so much land that paying for a railroad was no problem. Just create a corporation and give it so much land for every mile of track it laid. Lincoln was a strong proponent. In 1847, just before beginning his only term in Congress, he wrote a letter to the Illinois Journal that supported the Alton and Sangamon Railroad and called it, quote, a link in the great chain of railroad communication which shall unite Boston and New York with the Mississippi. He also strongly urged the United States to give 2,595,000 acres of land adjacent to the proposed road to Illinois to enable the state to grant that land to the Illinois Central. In a complicated case for the Alton and Sangamon, Lincoln won a decision before the Illinois Supreme Court that was later cited as precedent in 25 other cases throughout the United States. It was 700 miles north and south through the state with a branch to Chicago, the Illinois Central was the longest line in the world. The following year, 1852, Lincoln defended the yet unfinished Illinois Central in a case involving the right of the state legislature to exempt the railroad company from county taxes. Not until January 1856, the year the IC was completed, did the Illinois Supreme Court deliver a decision that accepted Lincoln's argument that the railroad was exempt. Lincoln handed the IC a bill for $2,000. The railroad rejected it, claiming this is as much as Daniel Webster himself would have charged. Lincoln submitted a revised bill for $5,000. <laughs> when the corporation refused to pay, he brought suit and he won. Lincoln was a leader in the fray over how to establish the first state railroad regulations. What was the responsibility of a railroad to occupants of lands adjoining the track? What was a railroad's relationship with passengers and shippers? Who should regulate the affairs between stockholders and directors? These and many other questions kept Lincoln involved as he became what an eminent scholar has called one of the foremost railroad lawyers in the West. He was the main lawyer for the IC in tax cases in what has been characterized as Lincoln's greatest legal achievement, the most important of Lincoln's legal services. His cases have been pronounced by scholar Charles Leroy Brown, quote, of extreme delicacy, which Lincoln worked on quietly, following a program of strategy, maneuver, and conciliation, saving the IC millions of dollars in taxes. In 1857, Lincoln was thus the natural choice to argue one of the most important cases ever about railroads. The Rock Island Bridge Company had built the first bridge across the Mississippi River for the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad. This was an innovation of immeasurable proportions, for it meant the country would be able to cross its north-south rivers with railroad tracks, the essential step to building the first transcontinental railroad. But when a steamboat ran into one of Rock Island's piers, the boat was set on fire and burned up. The owners sued the bridge company. The city of St. Louis and other river interests supported the principle of free navigation for boats, whereas Chicago and the railroad interest stood by the right of railway users to build a bridge. Lincoln represented the Rock Island Bridge Company in the landmark case. He went to the river and examined the rebuilt bridge, measured the currents in the river, and interviewed rivermen, all based on his experience as a pilot. At the trial, he argued that the steamboat had crashed into the bridge because of pilot error. 
But he also put the case into a broader context. Nothing less than national economic development. He pointed out that there was a need for, quote, travel from east to west, whose demands are not less important than that of the river. Lincoln said the east-west railroad connection was responsible for the astonishing growth of Illinois. Later found against the builders and ordered the bridge removed, the Supreme Court overruled and declared that railroads could bridge rivers. Had Lincoln never done another thing for the railroads, he earned their gratitude on this one. And I'm going to skip quite a lot here. And Lincoln it, it got into the 1860 um, Republican platform, a commitment to building the Pacific Railroad, which, as you know, was a really contentious issue and had been for 20 years. And eventually they got the bill passed because the South did the dumbest goddamn thing it ever could have done. It seceded from the Union. And that left only northern representatives and senators. And they, like that, they passed the 1862 Pacific Railway, Railway Bill, which Lincoln was a major supporter of. And Grenville Dodge, who had been working for railroads, had gone off to the Civil War, where he compiled an outstanding record, one of the very best of all the leaders of the Union Army. <coughs> And Dodge had 1,000 former slaves in his camp in 1863 who had come in from their plantations to support Union troops. And Dodge had put them to work. Uh, and he argued, and Charles A. Dana printed this in the New York Tribune, that uh, there's nothing that so weakens the South as to take its Negroes. From the perspective of the 21st century, Dodge was exactly right. But among the men of the 1860s era, he created great consternation. They were not at all sure they wanted the slaves to be free. And for sure, they did not want the African Americans bearing arms for the Union. Thus, Dodge was surprised and worried when, in the spring of 1863, he received a dispatch from General Grant ordering him to proceed to Washington to report to President Lincoln. There was no explanation, and Dodge confessed, I was somewhat alarmed, thinking possibly I was to be called to account. But on arriving in Washington, he discovered that Lincoln wanted to talk railroads. Even though Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia were just then preparing to march into Pennsylvania. The president had been charged by the Act of 1862 with fixing the eastern terminus of the Union Pacific. He recalled his 1959 talk with Dodge and wished to consult with him. Nearly every village on the Missouri River wanted the transcontinental to start at its site. Lincoln showed Dodge pleas from towns on both sides of the Missouri, from 50 miles above and below Council Bluffs. I found Mr. Lincoln well posted on all the controlling reasons covering such a selection, Dodd said. And we went into the matter at length and discussed the arguments presented by the different competing localities. In his blunt manner, and, and then they, Dodge talked about the Platte Valley and all his advantages. In his blunt manner, Dodge also told Lincoln that the Act of 1862 had many deficiencies in it, which he enumerated adding that they made it difficult to raise capital. That's a whole other story, but it was terribly difficult to raise capital to build a road that went nowhere. It went out into the desert from both coming from over the Sierra Nevada or leaving Omaha. But there's nothing out there. Who the hell is going to put money into building a railroad that has no market? And nobody's producing anything that you can bring back to Chicago or New York or wherever. And so it was very difficult, that's a whole other story, to get money to build this, especially with the Civil War going on. Uh, so Dodge told Lincoln, we've got to get some more money into here, without getting into all the details of the 1862 Act. But Dodge enumerated the deficiencies, adding, 
that they made it difficult to raise capital. Lincoln agreed and said he would see what could be done. He was very anxious that the road should be built and wanted to do his part. And he agreed with Dodge about the terminus, meaning Council Bluffs. Dodge told him it would be difficult at best for private enterprise to build the railroad. He said he thought it should be taken up and built by the government. Lincoln interjected that the government would give the, pro the project all possible aid and support, but could not build the road. As Dodge remembered his words, Lincoln said that the government, quote, had all it could possibly handle in the conflict now going on, that it would make any change in the law or give any reasonable aid to ensure the building of the road by private enterprise. That was a very big moment, not only in the history of this railroad, or railroading generally, but in the history of the United States. They did it differently in Russia. They decided the government ought to build this thing. And now I won't get into what happened. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, no, we're not going to put the government into this. We're going to get corporations, and we're going to provide the wherewithal so that they can build the railroad. This was unprecedented, beyond anything imagined by either Alexander Hamilton or Henry Clay, the first Secretary of the Treasury and the later Senator who had started the promotion of government aid to internal improvements, but they had had nothing like this in mind. <coughs> Um, the starting point, it, 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 skipping quite a bit of how this became such a contentious issue. Over the next two weeks, and this is in November of 1863, Dr. Durant, who was the vice president of the Union Pacific that had just been formed, over the next two weeks, Durant pressed Lincoln to make his decision on the starting point. He finally did so on November 17, a day when the president was distracted. In two days, he was to make some remarks at the dedication of the Union Cemetery at Gettysburg. Nevertheless, Lincoln managed to scratch off an executive order defining the terminus as, quote, so much of the western boundary of the state of Iowa as lies between the north and south boundaries of the city of Omaha. Lincoln put more thought into what he would say in Gettysburg, and it came out much better. Still, Durant was satisfied. Despite the lack of a railroad running to Council Bluffs, not to mention a bridge there over the Missouri River, the Union Pacific would make Omaha the starting point. And there were many other contentions that went into the act itself, the 1862, of course, and then the revision in 1864. Almost everyone in Congress knew that the 1862 Act would have to be revised, modified, changed. But one congressman noted, Mr. Lincoln said to us that his experience in the West was that every railroad that had been undertaken there had broken down before it was half completed. He had but one advice for us, and that was to ask sufficient aid. He said further that he would hurry it up so that when he retired from the presidency, he could take a trip over it. It would be the proudest thing of his life that he had signed the bill in aid of its construction. On July 2nd, 1864, Lincoln, always the railroad's first and finest friend, signed the revision, the 1864 bill, into law. It was everything that Dr. Rand and his fellow directors and Colas Huntington and his with the Central Pacific could have wanted. Lincoln did two other things for the Union Pacific. First, on November 4, 1864, he approved the first 100 miles of the permanent location of the tracks, as requested, from Omaha to the west. Second, as directed by the bill, he set the gauge at 4 feet 8 and a half inches the so-called standard gauge urged on him by Eastern railroaders. And of course, there were variations in the grades of the railroads at this time. You know that four foot, eight and a half inches, you know where that comes from? From what? 
that's where it comes from. The, and that's where the English built their first railroad. Now, how did the Roman chariots come up with four foot eight and a half inches? That's right. That's the width of two horses' asses. <laughs> and they traveled in tandem. And so that's the way. Today, t today, a little bit north and a little bit west of Ogden, Utah, Thiokol has a plant where they build these great big boosters for the space age. They ship them out on railroad. And they've had to make them four foot eight and a half inches so that the railroads can accommodate them. So thus, space travel is dictated to us by the width of two horses' asses. <laughs> On December 6, 1864, the newly reelected Lincoln who had Sherman's capture of Atlanta and Grant's triumphs in Northern Virginia behind him delivered his annual message to Congress. The war was his principal topic, but he gave a paragraph to the Transcontinental Railroad, calling it this great enterprise. He said it, quote, has been entered upon with a vigor that gives assurance of success, notwithstanding the embarrassments arising from the prevailing high prices of materials and labor. The route of the main line of the road has been definitely located for 100 miles westward from the initial point at Omaha City, Nebraska. And a preliminary location of the Pacific Railroad of California has been made from Sacramento eastward to the great bend of the Truckee River in Nevada. The Pacific Railroad Bill specified that the Sierra Nevada would commence where Lincoln said the mountains commenced. This was a matter of great importance to the men paying the bulk of the cost of building the line. Because <clears throat> you got so much per mile for every mile you built, and it varied. If it was flat land, you got, I think it was 16,000, then if it was hilly land, you got double that, and then if it was mountainous country, you got double that. So it, it mattered as to where did the Sierra Nevada begin? This was a matter of great importance. <clears throat> and the men uh, paying the bills decided to work on Lincoln, the man responsible. First of all, through officials in California. Governor Leland Stanford, who is a director of the Central Pacific, an owner, Governor Stanford asked the state's official geologist, Josiah D. D. Whitney, after whom California's highest mountain is named, uh, where was the point at which the mountains began? Whitney set off in a buggy with Charles Crocker as his guide. Crocker was the construction boss for the CP and also an owner of the CP. Whitney felt that, of course, the Sacramento River was the ultimate base of the region's tilt, and thus the place where the mountains began. But the land to the east of Sacramento is as flat as it can be. Crocker took Whitney to Arcade Creek, about seven miles to the east, now well within the boundaries of the city of Sacramento. So Crocker took Whitney to Arcade Creek and there showed him a fan of reddish earth that came out from the foothills. Whitney said that seemed to him as fair a place to begin as any and put that opinion down on official paper. If the Central Pacific could get Lincoln to accept that opinion, it would move the Sierra Nevada 15 miles west, thus bringing the railroad an extra $240,000 in government bonds. Aaron Sargent, a member of Congress, took the information from California, took the information to the president. He showed Whitney's report to Lincoln and argued for Arcade Creek as the beginning point for the Sierra. Lincoln said that seemed about right to him. As Sargent commented, here you see my pernacity and Abraham Lincoln's faith moved mountains. <laughs> another report, and I don't know which one is right in this, but another report has Lincoln saying here is a case in which Abraham's faith has moved mountains. Lincoln didn't get to take that trip.
although the presidential car that was built for him did. Dr. Rand bought it. And it was on the train that made the first trip from Omaha out to Sacramento. So the car made it, but Mr. Lincoln did not. And I'm going to just stop right there and ask for your questions. And I don't need anything you want. I'm not Ed Beers. <laughs> but if you want to ask about World War II or Lewis and Clark or Dick Nixon or the current election or whatever it is. Yes, sir. Dick Winters was a junior officer, platoon leader, in the Easy Company of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne. And the company commander was killed on D-Day, and Winters was elevated to company command. He then went on to become battalion commander, and he is adored by everyone who was killed on D-Day. Indeed, anyone who's ever known him. Uh, Dick is a man who wouldn't say shit if he stepped in it. He once told me a story. I, I spent a few weeks interviewing Dick, and he once told me a story of a heroic action in which he killed an awful lot of Germans. And we went for a walk after, you know, I was just exhausted from listening to this, and he was pretty tired from having to go through the whole thing again. And we went for a walk down to a pond that he had on his farm in Pennsylvania. And a flock of geese, I don't know, 12 or so of them, took off, and one goose was still on the pond, honking. And I said, what? And Dick said, that goose has got a broken wing. And when they take off, she stays here. And then they come back. And I said, well, Dick, you got a 22. You ought to go out and kill that goose before a fox gets it. And you can freeze it up and have Christmas dinner. And he said, I wouldn't do that. And he didn't. That was Dick. It is Dick. Uh, he's very much alive and in good health. And been wonderfully good to me through a long association that matters to me an awfully lot. And now Spielberg and Hanks are making a mini-series for HBO out of that book, Band of Brothers. They're just about done, and it's going to be a sensation. I'm told that it is the highest-priced TV show ever. Spielberg spent $50 million to make Private Ryan. He's spending $150 million on this one. And Dick Winters, fly, it's being shot in England and elsewhere, but principally in England. And they fly Dick over so that he can be on the lot when they're shooting and can offer his judgment on that's not right or yeah, that's the right way, you're doing it right and so on. And Dick has been uh, very active since the publication of Band of Brothers helped get his name known. He goes around, he goes to West Point, he goes to the Army War College, he goes to local high schools, he goes to the various colleges in Pennsylvania to speak on the subject of leadership. And all that have heard him think he's just as good as it could possibly get to be on the subject of leadership. So I thank you for the question. I'm a great admirer of Major Winters. Yes, sir. 
I think I think you've been talking to Ed Beers too much. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, when I was 28 years old, I had a call, and it was General Eisenhower, and he said, "Come up, I want to talk to you." And I, of course, did, and he said he wanted me to be an editor of his papers and his biographer. And we talked for three or four days about what would be involved. And at the end, he said, you must ask some questions. I said, yes, sir, I sure do. Why me? <laughs> I was 28 years old, and I published one book. And, he's, and that book, which there's some copies that are on here today, was published by LSU Press in an edition of 2000 of which they've still got 837 left to sell. <laughs> but one of the purchasers was Dwight David Eisenhower. And I was surprised, pleased, of course, but surprised. And I forget how I did it, but I asked him why. And he said he had always feared that General Marshall would be forgotten because he never commanded a field army in the Second World War. And he had been thinking about doing some writing about General Marshall, and he thought he ought to check on Marshall's, one of Marshall's predecessors, and he wanted to know, has anybody done anything on Halleck? And just then, my book came out, and he read it, and he called. And so it, it meant a lot to me, that book to say the least of it. Then there's a sequel. Eisenhower left the farm at Gettysburg to the National Park Service with the proviso that Mamie was going to be allowed to live there through her lifetime. When Mamie died, uh, the day after the funeral, I got a call from John Eisenhower, by now a, a close friend. And John said, now Steve, I'm, I'm here with my children. We're getting things that we want out of this house because in two days it's going to become National Park Service property. And your book Halleck is here beside Dad's bed. Eisenhower had a small bed that he took his naps in. He, uh, for everything you've ever heard about Kay Summersby, let me tell you that he and Mamie slept in the same bed for 50 years. It was a big, big mahogany bed. But he took his naps in a little bedroom, and he had a little bookcase beside it. And I was, uh, of course, uh, just flattered beyond words that my book was one of the ones in this little, it's just a little bedside bookcase, that my book was in there. And John then said, He's marked it all up. <laughs> that aroused a lot of curiosity on my part. Uh, and he said, do you want it? Or should we leave it where it is? And I started to think about it. And John interrupted that process by saying, quick, I got a lot of things to settle here today. <laughs> so I said, John, let's leave it where it is. And to this day, I don't know if I made a good decision or not. I've never held the book in my hands. It, it, that bedroom is cordoned off at the farm, and the NPS has never let me go in and pick up the book and look and see what he wrote in it. So now, the comments on what? The current, the current uh, election? I'm just like everybody else in this country. I'm badly confused and worried and distraught and proud of our democracy and hopeful that we're going to get through this uh, soon. And we're going to find out. Uh, a couple of just scattered thoughts. This business of we've got to get away from the Electoral College and have a popular vote, I am absolutely dead set against. I think. If you're going to do that, then let's abolish the state lines. Let's have one liquor law for the whole country. 
and let's have one gambling law for the whole country and one speed limit for the whole country and so on and so forth. Also, if we're going to do that, if we're going to take out the Electoral College and have only a popular vote for the president, uh, what the hell are we going to do about senators? I live half the year in Montana. Montana has about, it's less than a million people live in Montana. I mean, there are streets in New York City that have more people. <laughs> are we going to tell Montana, you get one-tenth of a vote in the U.S. Senate, and we're giving the two full votes to New York State? Just, that's some of the dangers that are involved, and you start tinkering with the Constitution. My own attitude is it served us well. It's a, the greatest document, and don't touch it. It's Absolutely. I heard Ed talking today about um, Sherman speaking on General Grant and saying that Grant never read military history. And I did. Uh, and he, Sherman had a lot of other things to say as well. Uh, a lot of it flattering about Grant. Dwight Eisenhower went on a staff ride to Gettysburg when he was a cadet at West Point. They all did. They still do. Dwight Eisenhower lived in Gettysburg in 1918. He was commander of the tank corps, which was scheduled to go over to England on, on November 11, 1918. He never got into the First World War, of which he was deeply embarrassed and even ashamed. But when he was at Gettysburg, both as a cadet and then later when he lived there at the end of the First World War, he examined that battlefield. Mamie said of him once, Ike knows every rock at Gettysburg. He, he then went down to other things in his career, and he went down to Panama, where he served under Fox Connor. Now, I'll take a minute and tell you this. Fox Connor was Pershing's operations officer in the First World War. By the time the Second World War came around, Fox Connor was too old for active duty. And you want to know how to be a great man? Luck. The luck of when you're born. Fox Connor was too young to go to the top in the First World War and too old to go to the top in the Second World War. But Eisenhower told me, Fox Connor was the ablest man I ever knew. Now, this was a man who knew Churchill, who knew Roosevelt, who obviously Nixon had been his vice president, and so on. He knew all the world leaders of the first four and a half, five decades of the 20th century. Fox Connor was the ablest man I ever knew. Well, one of the things that Fox Connor did for Eisenhower was he made him read, and then read some more, and then he would quiz him. He made him read Clausewitz. And he made him read on the Civil War and on the Revolutionary War. And Eisenhower was deeply immersed in military history, especially the history of the United States, and most especially in the Civil War. And not to talk about other, because this, this tended to be true. Patton, Patton was very strong in that direction. So was Bradley and many others. I don't know that Douglas MacArthur ever read anything, but. Uh, <laughs> But Eisenhower's campaign in Northwest Europe was deeply influenced, almost in a sense dictated by Ulysses Grant's 1864-65 campaign against Robert E. Lee. Yes, sir. All right. Sorry. Oh, okay. But I want to thank you, Professor. Sure. Thank you. And as a token of our appreciation, we'd like to give you this sterling silver medallion with your name inscribed and today's date inscribed. 
And thank you very much. You're very honored to have you. Thank you.